Hi, it's John here. As you may have heard on our first episode, AI is going to be a theme right through this season. It's transforming every sector and every part of the country. And we're excited to learn where the opportunities are, as well as where the dangers may lie. And so we're pleased to present this special bonus episode of Disruptors to you. It's an edited recording of a recent session of the Business and Higher Education Roundtable, hosted here in Toronto. The Roundtable represents some of Canada's biggest employers and leading educators and tackles some of the most pressing issues facing Canadian prosperity. The Roundtable's recent annual meeting focused on AI and kicked off with a special presentation from Joel Blitt, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Waterloo. It's called Navigating the AI Revolution. You'll also hear highlights of a panel discussion with Dave Mackay, RBC CEO, Anthony Viel, CEO of Deloitte Canada, and Mara Lederman, COO of Signal One, a leading AI startup. The conversation, hosted by Valerie Walker, the Roundtable CEO, focused on a number of themes, including the hype around AI, workforce implications, the practicality of adoption, ethics and accuracy, and Canada's challenges in becoming a global leader in AI applications, as well as AI research. Have a listen and let us know what you think. Today, I I want to talk to you about AI and how AI is going to basically change your economy and even more so going to change your world. But more importantly, I want to talk to you about what the opportunities are going to be for you, for your organization, and hopefully also for our country. So I'm going to start by talking about what I think is Canada's grand challenge at this point in time. But then I'm going to start talking about what what the big opportunity is to change that trajectory. Okay, and specifically, I'm going to talk about AI. But before I get there, I want to go back in history a little bit and talk about other general purpose technologies, because they're going to give us some insights as to how AI itself is going to be developed, is going to develop over time, is going to be adopted, and the opportunities that it's going to bring to us if we grab them. Okay, so that's a little land. Because this group really cares about jobs and skills, uh, I'm going to have a few things to say about that at the end as well. Okay, so let's start with Canada's challenge. Obviously, the challenge that I'm speaking about is Canada's innovation, productivity, and growth gap. What I have here, uh, I'm showing you Canada's labor productivity and that of the other G7 countries over the last half century, right, or last 50 years. And specifically what I'm doing is I've normalized all of them at the year 1970 to be 100. And so I'm showing you the growth in productivity over the last 50 years. And what you can see is that Canada's growth is dead last over this period. Now, there's many reasons for that. The industrial mix, the fact that uh, we're not investing as much in, in technology. Some would say that our managers are not sophisticated as in the U.S. But by and large, I would argue that it's a lack of R&D and a lack of innovation. So the culprit, lack of business R&D, if you look at R&D intensity, what you see is that Canada, again, is dead last. It actually gets worse than that. This is uh, R&D intensity by business, right? So government actually does a decent job. But it, it gets worse than that because we're actually the only G7 country has actually decreased our R&D intensity over the last 20 years. Now, it won't surprise you then that we're also dead last when it comes to innovation as measured by triadic patents. We're tied with Italy in this regard. And so if you put this together, of course, we're not going to be doing all that well in terms of economic growth. And maybe the biggest thing that I worry about is the things that as Canadians we identify with, which is our public services. So things like our quality health care, public health care, quality public education. Those very things are going to be at risk. We may not be able to afford them unless we change the trajectory. And so that's fundamentally what we're talking about. 
it's almost an existential threat to how we identify as Canadians. All right, so bad news over. So there was several articles in The Economist last week saying how AI is going to accelerate uh, science, scientific research, accelerate innovation. It's going to help us solve climate change. It's going to help cure disease, all of which I think are to a large extent true. But we also hear about the end of work, and we also hear about an existential threat to humanity itself. So I am going to talk about it in a second. As I said before that, I want to go back into history and look at other general purpose technologies because I think that they have a lot to tell us about how we can grab the opportunities of AI. So when I talk about general purpose technologies, as economists, what we mean is technologies like the steam engine, like electricity, like computers and the ICT revolution. And these technologies all have three things in common, right? So the first is that they're pervasive. And by that, I mean that they're not just going to be in one sector of the economy or one industry. They're not going to have just one application. They're going to be broad-based in a whole bunch of different areas. The second thing is that they undergo ongoing improvements. So it's not a technology that is going to arrive and be fixed and therefore deployed. It's constantly going to be improving, getting better, and changing. And the last one, which is also really important, is it is subject to innovation complementarities. And what I mean by that is that these technologies are not just evolving themselves. There's complementary technologies that are evolving as well, and there's an interplay between them. So all of these characteristics imply, first of all, that general purpose technologies are going to be transformational. Okay, they're going to have a huge impact on society. They're going to change things. I'm sure all of you knew that before. But the other thing is that it usually takes decades to truly feel their impact. And so that's the first lesson, right, is that it takes time. And so we shouldn't expect too much in the short run. But the other lesson from history that I think is even more important is that the adoption of this technology is going to follow a, a fairly predetermined path. And so this, this I call the three phases of adoption or the three R's. And so in the first phase, you have that the new technology is displacing old technology. Okay, but crucially, the processes, the business models, they all stay the same. It's just that the technology is replacing the old technology in specific tasks where those technologies are being used. It's the second phase that I call the reimagined phase, where the processes themselves, the business models, are fundamentally shaken up because they're reimagined around the new technology, around the capabilities of the new technology. Okay, where you see a lot of productivity improvements, you see the, the, the economy and society being shaken and things coming out the other side a lot different. The third phase of adoption is recombined. We're not going to focus so much on this one today, right? Because that is further in the future. But recombine is where the technology combines with other technologies to create entirely new technologies. So the example I want to use here is electricity, right? If you, if you go to the late 1800s, you had these factories. They were all powered by the steam engine, right? And you had one big steam engine there, and you had a lot of different stations in the factory. And each one of those stations had to be connected by a line shaft to the single power source. Now, if you fast forward a couple of decades, now we start getting the electric engine. But fundamentally, you can see that the factory layout is the exact same. Okay, now that brought some productivity improvements because the electric engine is a little bit cheaper to run, it's more reliable, et cetera, but relatively minor. Now, it took another 20 years until people realized, hey, wait a second, with electricity, I can fundamentally reimagine the way that I structure my factory. And so specifically, you could now have at every workstation a little electric engine. And that meant that now you could organize the factory floor in a much more logical way where the outputs from one station became the inputs of the next station. 
And then the recombined phase, of course, we know that electricity combined with advanced materials created transistors, semiconductor chips, telecommunications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In the interest of time, I won't go into too many other examples, but at least let me talk about computers for a second, at least fairly quickly. Right, and if we go, if we back up to 1987, computers had been around for a couple of decades, and yet they really weren't having a macro impact. They were nowhere in the productivity statistics. It, it was known as the computer's productivity paradox. It was the machine of the year, but yet there was no sort of macro impact. And the reason, of course, was that people were using it a little bit, but they were still stuck in phase one. So in the first phase, computers replaced human computers, right? So the term computers actually used to refer to people that sat at desks and did arithmetic all day. Right? And then we had electronic computers, obviously, that replaced them. But they also replaced a lot of people in the back office, bookkeepers, clerks, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, but the business models, the way that firms were organized, really didn't change. It was only until the second phase, reimagine, where now we start to see the decentralization of corporations. Right, So with computers, you can maintain better control. Uh, we saw companies venturing abroad because, again, with better communications, you could now communicate over larger distances. And we started seeing new models like customer relationship management, where you could start organizing a business around customer segments, for example. Right? And, of course, the computer combined with other technologies. We got the internet, smartphones, et cetera, et cetera. And now the question is, how does this apply to AI? Let's start with very high level, and then we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into each of these different phases. Okay, but at a very high level, your job as an executive, as an organizational leader, is to move your organization as quickly and responsibly, but as quickly as possible through these phases. Right? And so phase one, you need to be thinking, okay, how can I drive efficiencies? And this is going to result in things like cost cutting, increasing volume, increasing quality, but then at the same time as you're doing that, you have to be thinking, okay, I know what's coming down the line. Eventually, people are going to dream up of how can I do things fundamentally different using this technology, right? So phase two, the reimagined phase. And as a leader, you need to be thinking along those lines as well. Maybe you need to be leading in being the organization that actually does it before someone else does it and disrupts you. As you're doing all of this, of course, you need to have your eye on the horizon, okay? You need to have a, a scan function that is actually saying, okay, well, what, how is this technology going to combine with other things, this, in this case AI, to create entirely new things, entirely new technologies that are going to, again, fundamentally radically change everything. So let us talk about replace. In order to think about what you can actually replace and do more efficiently, you have to understand what the technology can actually do. And so what do large language models do? Well, they're very good at writing. They're very good at ideation. They're very good at background research, at coding, at data analysis, and to some extent also math. And the crazy thing is that this list seems to be expanding every other week, right? And they seem to be doing all of these things better and better. So you want to engage in phase one. You want to engage in the replace phase. Well, the first thing to do is, all right, well, let me look at my workflows. Let me look at my processes. Let me break those down into tasks. And then let me see which of those tasks are things that the AI can do. If it's a task that the AI can do, let me do a return on investment analysis. And then starting at the top of my ROI list, I'm just going to start knocking them off one by one by one and automate more of my process. Okay. Um, I, I, you know, I want to point out that it sounds like the you know, AI is just coming in, you're getting rid of people, you, you're dumping in AI. Obviously, it's not going to be that simple. What is going to happen in most cases is that 
the person is going to start working with the AI. Right. And so this is where some people make the distinction between labor augmenting versus labor displacing. Personally, I think that's a bit of a false dichotomy because what's going to happen is if it is labor augmenting, the person's going to be able to be twice as efficient, get twice as much done in an hour. Unless demand for whatever they're doing increases twofold, you're not going to need as many workers. And so even if it is purely human enhancing, which, by the way, I think it mostly is, there are going to be some job losses. And there really is no other way around it. Now, a lot of what I'm saying today is I want to get you guys out of the replace phase and really thinking about phase two, because that's where the real changes are going to happen. But for AI, I want to point out that there are actually big gains to be had just from this phase alone, which is actually relatively easy in the grand scheme of things. And so this is some early evidence of what these gains that can be had are. Right? So there's a paper that shows that in writing tasks, you can increase productivity, so the speed of writing with the use of ChatGPT by 59%. In the area of programming, you can increase coding speed by 56%. In customer service, you can increase the, uh, the number of cases resolved by 14%. And even in the healthcare sector, chatbots seem to be offering better responses to customer queries than doctors do. And here's a kicker. Their responses have also been judged to, to be a lot more empathetic. Yes. One other thing I want to mention here is, to a large extent, these technologies are helping the least skilled, right? So if you're a phenomenal writer, these technologies are not going to help you much. If you're a relatively weak writer, they're going to help you a lot. They level out the playing field, okay? All right. So this is the replace phase. And now we get to the reimagine phase. And I know what you're all hoping. You're all hoping I'm going to tell you exactly how you can reimagine your own corporation, your own organization. I can't do that because you are the experts on your organization. I certainly have some thoughts across different industries. What I'm going to do instead, I'm going to give you some examples. If we go back to the last sort of big technology, I would argue it's the internet. You might argue it's mobile technology, but let's go with the internet. We saw three really big companies come out of that age, right? How did they come out of nowhere to become really big companies? Well, if you look at the case of Amazon, what they did is they engaged in this reimagined phase before anyone else. And if you look at Meta, they did the same thing when it came to social networks and how people interact with each other. Okay, phase three. Uh, in phase three, again, I'm not going to talk very much about it, but it's, these technologies are combined to create entirely new things. So, for example, AI, robotics, 5G, and IoT are going to combine to create collaborative robots. These are going to be entities that have the cognitive capabilities and the flexible sort of physical capabilities and are going to be connected to the internet. They're going to have access to everything. They're really going to change everything, right? But of course, that's a good ways off. All right. So let me just say a couple of things about the impact of jobs. I think this framework I led you guys through helps us to also think about what the impacts on jobs are going to be. And specifically, in the replace phase, it's actually fairly predictable. Because all we need to do is we need to ask which jobs have... So we look at all the tasks that are involved in each of these different jobs, and some jobs are going to have the majority of their tasks being things that these technologies can do. Those jobs are going to be in trouble. Other jobs, not so much, because these technologies, you still need humans in the loop for now. When you move to the reimagined phase... At that point, it's really hard to say. So, for example, I could never have predicted that the internet was going to get rid of retail jobs. 
It wasn't clear. There was no link there until Amazon fundamentally redefined the industry. It wasn't like, oh, these, you know, the internet, the kinds of tasks that these people, no, it, that, that wasn't the analysis at all. So it's really hard at that point to say what's going to happen. I want to say one thing as well about winners and losers and about skills. I think society is a tremendous opportunity for, for organizations, for a country, but we can't forget that there's going to be winners and losers. Not everyone is going to be affected equally. And so I think it's important for us to keep that in mind and make sure we have in place the kinds of programs that can help everyone. So who are going to be the winners and losers? Well, it basically depends whether your skills are complementary to, to AI or whether AI is going to replace those skills, whether it can do those skills. So what are some of the complementary skill things like entrepreneurial skills? If you're an entrepreneur and you have ideas, you are now super empowered. You can use these technologies to implement all kinds of things quickly. On the other hand, things like writing background research, reading, and programming, those are going to be competing with AI. So that's all I want to say for that. In the interest of time, I'm just going to conclude and, and share with you what I think are some of the key takeaways. I think we really are at an inflection point here where we have a technology that's going to transform our economy and our society. And for all of you that are leading organizations, it's an opportunity to increase efficiencies. In other words, to you know, focus on phase one. But you should really see that only as a tip of the iceberg. You really need to be thinking about phase two. In other words, there's a once in a generation, maybe once in a lifetime even, opportunity to really transform your business. And if you're really ambitious, actually your industry. And the question is, who's going to do it? Right now, I started to talk by saying, in Canada, we have a real problem here. We need to address it. We need to change the trajectory. But to do that, we're going to need our small and medium and large organizations to engage in these first two phases. And of course, that's not going to be easy because they're running all the time and don't have the, the, the capacity. They might not, not know about AI. I think it was a big role here for uh, higher ed and for government to get involved, make sure that happens. My dream is... There's going to be the next Amazon, Google, or Meta of the AI age is going to be coming out at some point, and I want them to be Canadian, at least one of them to be Canadian. Okay, so one, one parting note, and, uh, and I think this is especially relevant for higher education institutions. We really have not changed much in the way we do things in many, many years. If you're not willing to be a disruptor, then you better prepare to be disrupted. So I'll stop there. Thanks so much. feel like Joel kind of threw down the gauntlet there for the post-secondary folks in the room. That's amazing, Joel. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really pleased now to invite our esteemed panelists to stage. You already know Dave McKay. Dave is, is Beher's biggest champion. Anthony Beal, who goes by AV. Here, he's the CEO of Deloitte Canada. Deloitte just put out two days ago a big report on the impact and opportunities of Canada's AI ecosystem. And last but certainly not least, Mara Liederman. Uh, Mara is the chief operating officer and co-founder of Signal One. And prior to Signal One, Mara was a professor at the University of Toronto Rotman School of Business and was one of the uh, leads of the Toronto site for the Creative Destruction Lab. I am so thrilled to have you up here. I could just maybe get everyone to give them a real round of applause to get them excited about talking. Um, and I think my first question, and I'm going to throw it open to, to all of you, is just to like, what did you think about what Joel said? How, how are you feeling now? So, I mean, it was a great presentation. And 
you know, I think Joe brought to life everything that economics has been thinking about, you know, not just in terms of AI, but really drawing on the history. What have we seen as the patterns from technology innovations in the past? If you had asked me a year and a half ago, I would have said, I absolutely agree with everything Joel said. Now I'm going to qualify that. I absolutely agree that the field of economics says everything that Joel told you that it said. And when, as Joel said, the returns to the replace phase are kind of small. They're not nothing, but they're not as big as the transform phase. It's like, why am I going to do all that work for something that might be small? So then you're like, well, I can give you this big idea of transforming your hospital. They're like, I'm definitely not doing that work. And so I think that's probably, you know, the, the what I can offer is there is so much under the hood there that makes this so, so very hard, even when all of the intentions and the incentives are in the right place. Amy, that's a good segue to you. You can speak to it. I was inspired uh, and uh, enthusiastic about what Joel was talking about and why, why I am. I, I believe that the, the reimagine phase is going to create jobs. Uh, we digitized all the analog and we did that for a good 15 years uh, for full returns, good returns, good efficiencies for sure. We haven't really grasped that reimagine phase yet with digital let alone AI, but with digital and the opportunities that presents itself. So it's going to take a long time. I think the message you had in your presentation, don't be lulled into inaction, and that's our message at Deloitte. Deloitte put out a report just a couple of days ago. What, what were the main themes, the key takeaways for you that came out of that assessment of, of Canada's AI ecosystem? Uh, I think that uh, well, uh, the headline statement is um, 86% of Canadian organisations uh, are worried about the risks privacy, confidentiality, biases, poor quality results. They're all legit and they're all in this first phase. I'm not talking about iRobot taking over the world and we become enslaved into technology. I think that's something we can talk about in the decades to come, but immediately, you know, the the privacy part, uh, there's legitimate concern on that. The poor quality results, the hallucinations, but also the model deterioration, that ChatGBT4 in some tasks is worse than ChatGBT1 and nobody can explain why. So they're legitimate legitimate concerns that uh, I think back up that 86% of respondents are worried about the risks. We have three executives from companies up here. My question is, you know, we've got a room full of uh, companies and post-secondaries. When you're thinking about some of these barriers, if it's still adoption around digital tech or adoption or at least understanding of the potential of AI, generative AI in particular, when and how do you think about post-secondaries and how you would want to work with them now how have you worked with them? Where do you see that relationship going? Sure, I, I, I can start. I mean, I think there is such an incredible role for, partner, for partnerships between post-secondary and between enterprise. I think I, I would have said in the past that post-secondary does the research. Somewhere in the middle, we have programs like CDL to help with the commercialization, and then we sell it to large enterprises. That's too small a view. There is this huge part I've learned in the middle that goes from the research to the development, I think, where that development part, which is so so much part of the commercialization, has to be done in partnership with potential customers. Um, and that's something I didn't even appreciate when I saw all these startups through, through CDL and say, okay, the next eight weeks, get one private customer. But what we realized is like you can't build a product for a technology product for your customer just as the technology 
company. You, you need to be almost embedded and working closely with your customer to understand all of your blind spots to what practically needs you know, to work, to make it work. So I think that's one form of partnership that's so important. We need to bring uh, large enterprises. We do this at our company. We, our first two hospitals were design partners. And that meant something very specific. And they knew right from the outset, you're getting something that's unproven, right? Now you're getting some great deals in terms of that, but here's all the stuff you're going to help us with. And they are effectively co-designing the technology with us. So I think that's kind of on the development side, so much opportunity. The, the other thing I've learned is on these areas, like the risks you talked about, we need the research on the cutting edge, thinking around algorithmic bias. How do we regulate these things? But even that needs to be paired with doing it in practice, right? So much of what we do around model validation, retraining, monitoring, borrowed from what my co-founder did when he built AI inside of one of the other leading banks. He never would have figured that out, you know, in graduate school. It was the, the need to put it into practice in a, in a regulated industry, in an organization with very strong risk management practices, they're, they're like, okay, how do we figure out to take what the computer scientists have taught us and, and turn it actually into technology that can do this? So I think that's the second place where higher education and, and enterprise really need to work hand in hand, specifically around AI. Dave, I throw that same question to you and the relationship and partnership potential that exists here. One of those use cases we've already started to reimagine, and this is where we need university help, and that is the coding one that you, you pointed out. So we've already challenged ourselves to solve a major problem in our, in our company, and that is we've lost control of our tech stack to third-party software providers. So our big idea is if I can code software 75 to 80% cheaper than I did before, then I'm going to get back in the game that I was doing 25 years ago of, of coding my own software. That's the reimagine. And I want it. <laughs> and I'll fund it. <laughs> so you can see the disruption. And every other CEO of every other major company won't want the same thing. But that controlling the code is going to be really critical. So wh what do we do? We'll bring more co-op students in and get us to 75% chat GPT code. Then I need a systems design person to architect the system and then we'll code it ourselves really efficiently. And I don't have to pay that economic rent billions and billions of dollars a year. So that reimagine, I think is, is that two, three, two to three horizon as well, maybe five, maybe 10, but we'll start on it now. So anyway, that's an example of how exciting this technology is and kind of rethinking the world and why we're going to need students who have broken that bias to kind of rethink the world. So you've heard it here first, folks. Dave's getting back into coding. So that's what, that's what my takeaway. Uh, <laughs> Always a coder. Started as a coder, we'll finish as a coder. Full circle. AB, I saw you nodding and taking some notes. I'm going to ask you to build on that. And then I'm giving you guys the heads up. I'm coming out to the audience. This is where we pivot into the uh, panel and audience conversation. AB. I, I think Dave's point, uh, augmenting human and technology is a good strategy and you should continue to do that, develop through your programs, um, folk that are not scared of technology, embrace technology. And if I could pick up just Mara's point earlier as well as is. Uh, I get really nervous when people in Deloitte start innovating too far away from 
the end user, the client, um, the the patient, the the what have you. I think we shouldn't forget that. And purple people are, are the are the ones that can get to the to the crux of that. But I, I agree with Dave too that white collar productivity has been terrible for 40, 50 years, terrible. And this is an opportunity and where we can get some productivity and white collar. And I think it's within and around this area, leveraging and augmenting technology that's going to be able to do that. In in the field of, of uh, AI, you know, because we're talking a lot about how we marry the education to ensure that we're ready to actually tackle that. I know we're talking a lot about college and university, but I actually challenge that. I think we need to start, to, we need to start in the schools. With Gen AI right now, like when I think about when I was developing code, uh, I don't know, 30 years ago, it was horrendous. It was like, uh, you know, C and it was not the most easy thing to do right now. Now you can start to teach kids from school to actually prompt code so they can create code. If we wait for college and university, we're coming too late. The other thing I find that we have to think about is, is AI where we're going to focus? So when I look at other countries, you know, as just quick examples, if I look at India, they decided a long time ago, they were going to focus on IT and there was government grants. There was like the whole thing channel on how they will become the best country to actually have IT and they did it. So is AI our focus? And if that is our focus, what are we going to do to ensure that as India did with IT or many other countries, very, uh, decisively shows what they're going to be good at, we're going to get to it because we're going to have to start in every different angle to get to. So I'm not even convinced yet that as a country, we're very clear on that yet. We want to be good at so many things, but you cannot be good at everything. One of the outcomes of our research, if I may, um, we found that one in 10 of the leading Gen AI researchers reside in Canada today. And we've grown that talent around the, those luminaries, if you will, faster than any other G7. Now, whether we deploy that, whether we keep them in country, whether we, ins- through incentives and otherwise, um, I think is over to, you said, uh, you know, even government's got a role to play here as well to do that. How do we make Canada an attractive proposition for those talent? Indeed, it was just to add something quick, like one of the things that is a little bit painful is a lot of the fathers of AI are Canadian. How many big AI companies we have in Canada right now? At a global stage, zero, which is really painful. A question yeah, for educators. Dave. I think it's really important. As, as you, you might have to, are you flipping your educational methodology on its head and, and starting with the output from the machine then asking your students to, to validate it? And the research and the learning is how do you prove true or false and what's the quality of that answer? I mean, is that something that you're talking about and thinking about? Yes, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. Now, I just came back from a week in Sydney, the Times Higher Education World Academic Summit, where, in fact, much of the agenda was devoted to this question of how, you know, we prepare our students for a world a working world in which Gen AI is going to be a routine tool that they'll be using. The issue of prompt engineering came up, and I think it was agreed that we could probably come up with a better label, maybe prompt design or prompt creation, because it uh, you know it speaks exactly to the skill set that's actually going to be required in order to do this well. But I wanted to um, 
to come back to Mara's uh, wonderful case study of you know your experience and and the difficulty that you're in, encountering and you know you emphasize the importance of connecting technology users and technology producers together in a kind of co-creation process, which we're not very used to doing in this country. You know, the undeniable kind of sorry track record that, that we have in this country of business enterprises being very slow to adopt technologies that would enhance their productivity. I would say also slow to embrace a training agenda, which is a complementary input that one requires in order to make use of new technologies effectively. So chronically, we, we have underinvested in training. We've also seen businesses undervaluing in the importance of investments in the fixed capital that is at the cutting edge. And so, you know, the question it raises is how do we change the demand side of this, this process? How do we get more enterprises to do what RBC is doing and help them to understand not just the opportunities, but the threats. Because if they don't recognize the importance of making these kinds of investments, they're not going to survive very long. So I welcome comments from all of you on that particular issue and just say that this session today has done a fantastic job of zooming in on, I think, the number one challenge that, that the Canadian economy is going to be facing in the next little while. So I think the first thing is nothing... Nothing like a crisis gets people to do stuff. And I would guess, Vivek and others might know this better, there was probably incredible collaboration between academia and healthcare systems during COVID. And ideas probably went from research to implementation sort of faster than has ever happened before, right? So it is certainly possible when it is necessary. So then that asks the question, well, why isn't it happening the rest of the time. And I have a few ideas on it. I think on the demand side, I think personally, I think we have a lot of industries that aren't sufficiently competitive and we're not that big a market. I mean, if we had a ton of, you know, in the, in the States, they have tons of regional banks, right? We don't have a ton of banks. We don't have a ton of airlines. We could count them on less than one hand. And so I think obviously competition is a threat to keep getting better. And there's some industries I think don't have enough competition. We don't have probably as much competition for talent um, in Canada as we should. Our MBA students overwhelmingly wanted to stay in Canada. Now that is great for the Canadian employers and a huge fraction of them went to the big banks. And I love that you hire our students, but I wish you hired them away from them wanting to go to the U.S. And then it's hard for all the reasons people here have, have said it's hard. Absorptive capacity, training, people are busy, right? They don't have a lot of time on the middle of doing their jobs to do new things. And then the last point I've spoken too much, just coming back to Joel's point about transformation, I can't think of an example where the true transformation around a new technology, now I could be wrong, came from an incumbent. So what are the ones where we think of new technologies transform business? Amazon transformed retail, startup. Uber transformed transportation, startup. Netflix transformed entertainment. It wasn't blockbuster all of a sudden saying, we're going to close every store, right? And so maybe there, Joel's probably thought about whether there is or there isn't. But part of why this is hard, you know, I want to transform an emergency department. Well, that's not going to happen for 20 years. Amazon's going to be more likely to do that than, you know, my technology company with some incumbent. Could you imagine if, like you said one day, we're closing every one of our branches? That could be a transformation. We're disrupting ourselves. But, You're disrupting yourselves, but, but on hard. the scale 
of the examples that Joel brought. Disruption is the slower. The speed, yeah. the scale, the, the impact on the humans that you kind of care about as a leader, it's very hard to do that. And I think that's why it's so hard to get to that transforming. This has been fantastic. A huge, huge thank you to the panel. Can I just get everyone to, to give our panel a round of applause? That was an edited recording of the annual meeting of the Business and Higher Education Roundtable held in Toronto on October 5th. And this is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm John Stackhouse. Talk to you soon. Disruptors, an RBC podcast, is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Disruptors content, visit rbc.com disruptors and leave us a five-star rating if you like our show.